I'm Mark Gandy for Civil Bookshelf. Every year I read five to 10 books written by CEOs. I enjoy them because I find them relatable and interesting. And I learn two to three new things from every writer. When Around the Corner, Around the World hit my radar this summer, I was intrigued. It's the startup humble beginnings all the way to international success of Dunkin' Donuts. Now, I'm not a customer, so I know very little about the chain, the brand. But this book by Robert Rosenberg, it was fun and a very educational read. My friend and fellow CFO, Bruce Reed, calls this a masterclass in business and leadership. And speaking of Bruce Reed, he's joining me on this episode to break down some of the really big ideas of Around the Corner, Around the World, a dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin' Donuts. That's coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. Bruce Reed is the CFO of Practice Link, the number one physician job board in the U.S. and the very first to go to market many, many years ago. And no, I'm not paid to say that because it's a fact. My favorite books, Bruce, tend to be by CEOs. Do you like these same types of books yourself? Yeah, yeah. I I, I definitely, as, as business books go, I, I appreciate the the CEO stories, founder stories, you know, the, 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 the story of the person who, you know, was had ultimate responsibility, ultimate accountability. Um, I appreciate that. I mean, the, the, the occasional, you know, uh, business book, like one minute manager, or, you know, those, those other things where everything is just neat and tidy, tied up into a bow. If you do these five steps, you know, follow this framework, um, and, and those things, and they, you know, kind of leave out the, the things that, you know, make business interesting. Um, there was a, the good book about a CEO, um, doesn't make you feel, you know, make, makes you realize that you, that you all share, you know, some of the same insecurities and, and some of those other things. I, I read very few leadership books. Instead, I like reading about the leadership exhibited by the CEOs I'm reading. And by the way, before we dive into the book by the CEO who wrote it, as a lacrosse player, you either have a four or a six pack. And I am betting you don't go to Dunkin' Donuts, do you, Bruce? Well, um, there's been a t- there's been a time in my life um, where that was the... Uh, the I guess the the crawler from Dunkin' Donuts was you know a a a favorite and you know, I've I've had my I've had my share but it's definitely not uh, de- definitely not a daily stop. The author is Bob Rosenberg, the thirty year CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. His dad William was the founder. Now, right after Bob graduates, it's with an MBA at Harvard. His dad says, son, you are now running the business. Now, these numbers are going to be dated, Bruce, but here are the numbers as of the date of this book. 
6 million customers served daily across 13,000 stores in 40 different countries. So I want to I want to share some names before I get to my next point. Amazon, Coke, Microsoft, Disney. When you hear those names, what do you think of? I mean, it's just a they're they're kind of an iconic brand. Um the iconic brand in a lot of cases uh very you know, we know we know who the we also know who the leader is. Um there I associate most of those brands with a person. At the time Bob wrote this, Dunkin Donuts, listen to this, had a 95% brand recognition. I I had no idea it was that high. Again, I'm not a customer of Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, A few other quick facts, Bruce. Their first store opening, 1950 Quincy, Massachusetts. I don't know where that is. Uh, If you are from Massachusetts, where is that in relation to the coast? Uh, Boston. It was not called Dunkin' Donuts. Care to guess the name? And by the way, you probably saw my notes. I did. I, I I don't want to. I don't want to cheat. I want to keep this uh, up on the up and up and integrity and with integrity. I did not recall until you mentioned it to me uh, in the notes. It was called Open Kettle, and no one liked the name. And I believe you may have to go back to Williams' book, the Dad's Name. There was a brainstorming session. Someone and somebody asked, "What do you do with a chicken?" Well, you you pluck it. What do you do with a donut? Well, you dunk it. And William, the father, says, hey, that's it. So right after that happened, Red Skelton, remember him? He developed an entire routine on how people dunk their donuts. And that had a positive impact on their business. So moving along, when you think of coffee, what brand do we all have on our mind? Well, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna think of Starbucks. Um, you know, you're gonna think of Maxwell House. Um, it's again, so, sort of cheating, sort of cheating on my on my part, and I think we'll get to it. Um, I, I do. There is some reference. I, my mind does reference Dunkin' Donuts um, for coffee. Before I read the book, they were the first chain to make coffee the centerpiece of their menu. And one of the main marketing coups in their history was when they ultimately introduced another size and price point for coffee. You can imagine sales skyrocketed after that happened. I spent a couple years in Boston and um, it, well, so, so there you go. I mean, that, that's definitely where, the coffee battle takes place. But I would say in, in Boston, if, again, if you were to, if you were to poll, um, I would say it would be at least 50, 50 Starbucks, which there is one on every corner in, in the city, it, it seems, um, and versus Duncan. And I, it's a pretty, there are some people who will not drink Starbucks and will only drink Dunkin Donuts there. It is, you see that coffee, you see that coffee focus a little bit more, I think on, on, on the East coast. One more fact, they did go public in 1968 
Do you know who IPO'd first in this industry? Other QSRs? Got to be Mickey D's. Exactly. And then KFC was next. I didn't know that. And then Dunkin' Donuts was third. Again, the name of the book is Around the Corner, Around the World. And I did reach out to Robert. Unfortunately, no response. So I'm curious, Bruce, I want to know your first impressions of the book. What did you think when you wrapped it up? Well, I, I love the book. Um, when when you recommended it, I wasn't expecting, um, I was expecting to be a story. I wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting the, the depth of, of technical, I'm saying technical, you know, there, he talks a lot about metrics, talks a lot about the numbers behind the business, um, that the, the numbers, there's a flood of numbers and, um, and, you know, you, an infinite amount of data that you can dig into to try to make decisions and to set goals. And that was the one thing that this is, while it's a story about donuts and coffee, it's really a study about financial leadership um, and operational leadership, um, as it is, you know, a, a quaint story about donuts and coffee. Bob was not the perfect leader, was he? After they went public, the board even asked him to find his replacement. But he said, give me one more quarter. So we get the insights to several management misses throughout the entire book. One thing I like about the structure is the way it's organized. Each chapter has four sections, which are Bob's management pillars, strategy, organization, communication, and crisis management. He calls these the CEO critical functions. Now, again, that's for him. So every chapter includes these pillars, which are his core four. So everybody else's are going to be different. For example, you're probably not going to have crisis management in your core four of critical functions. And at the risk, Bruce is sounding condescending, and I hope I'm not talking too much. We have to be careful about latching on to another leader's critical management tools. For Bob, those were his, weren't they? Yeah, I think that's that's true. Plus, you know, we're 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 and kind of we're, like we were talking about earlier why books about CEOs are so interesting because it's everything it's messy. You know, the path is messy. The CEOs have flaws. You know, they they're they have fears, they have, you know, biases. There's they're they're human beings and they're working with human beings. And so, you know, I think those I think those pillars those pillars are going to change in some way based on how a leader leads and all leaders aren't the same. You know, there's, there's some are the fighter pilot, some are the unassuming, you know, some, some are well-spoken, some are, are, you know, are clumsy. Um, there, there's no, there is no cookie cutter. There is no simple framework to, um, to win. And, you know, each individual is going to pick the things they need to focus on and I think should pick the things to focus on um, 
then the things to not focus on, but we'll probably get into that when we talk about, if we talk about strategy, um, but they got to, the, each individual is going to pick the four things that they think are going to make um, the best chance to win. I mentioned this already. Bob's dad wrote a book, Time to Make the Donuts. And the way I found it is humorous because I read this book, Bob's book, Around the Corner, Around the World, recommended it to a CEO on a Zoom call, and he looks it up, and he says, well, do you mean this book by William Rosenberg? It's like, no, what are you talking about? So that's when I learned about the dad's book, and I went on to read it. And it could be, this is the first father-son CEO duo, same company, that have both written books. I Is that true? If Please let me know on LinkedIn if you can think of another father-son duo that, uh, that have done this. I thought of the Watsons, but I don't think the elder statement, statesman, the patriarch, wrote a book. I don't think he did. Thomas Watson Jr., yes, but the father, that, that came to mind first, so that's just not correct. So it's not in Bob's book, but I sensed an icy relationship at times between the dad and the son. Let's go back to a little bit of history. William, the founder, had only an eighth grade education. And what he lacked in book smarts, he made up in resilience. And that just comes across in story after story after story in William's book. Uh, He could have used you, Bruce, because he seemingly never ran into an investment he didn't like. Uh, He was a serial entrepreneur. At one point, he did ask his brother-in-law to join the business. He was an accountant. Uh, Harry is his name. As the business grew, William was getting all of the attention. So Harry, the brother-in-law, was not, and that bothered him. He wanted out. So William buys buys him out for $350,000. And Harry, (laughs) this is funny, he goes out and starts his own donut shop. It's called Mr. Donut. So here's my next question. William, the dad, wants to be a millionaire, and he's getting close to it, at least on paper. So he appoints his son as the CEO after he graduates with an MBA at Harvard. How would you have liked being Bob, working for the dad? Man, that's... uh... I mean that I get I again I guess it would depend. Um, I say for for a brief period of time I actually worked in the factory where my dad was sales manager, so I wasn't working directly for him. Um, but I felt a tremendous amount of pressure every day to, in essence, be perfect and to not embarrass and not embarrass the family, um, and that. You know, on on one hand, it got me to work on time. I worked harder than anybody else um, on the summer crew uh, that was in there. Um, but it was there was a uh, there was some pressure to it. Um, you know, because it's I mean, just you know, working under the watchful eye of the person that raised you just uh, um, would seem that would have some challenges in any family. I'm not a family psychologist 
or therapist, but in any family, obviously stress, strain, tension. So when you go to introduce business into the equation, I'm sure there can be even more heated discussions at times. Uh, Reading between the lines in William's book, I sense he was tossing some pot shots at the sun for various types of mismanagement. Again, that's my interpretation. If Robert were on the show, I would want to ask him about that relationship with his dad. I do know this. He endured for 30 years and the public record, it is clear with his success. From $93,000 in earnings at the very beginning of the 1950s to a billion dollar brand. You know, and the, and the thing is they, you know, they went through this, they, you know, they went through this, you know, amazing journey together, but the, the thing, and, and kind of alluding to what you were talking about, you know, I don't think they came out of it with a stronger relationship. I think they paid a, I think their relationship paid a price for having also been business partners. And, you know, I think that's probably something that's important for people to keep in mind. Is it, is that, or is there a way to do it without jeopardizing the long-term relationship between father and son? If you only read Robert's book, again, I don't think you'll pick up on the tension as much. But Robert doesn't speak, he doesn't allude fondly, dad. It could, it, it could just as easily be, you know, a business partner there. It does, he does, there, his, his description of their interactions does not exude any warmth whatsoever, at least from my, my, from my perspective. And then when you said William's book, you know, kind of takes it a step further, that, that doesn't surprise me. Another story I liked in Bob's book, there was an unmet asking price of $1.5 million in 1963. So there's a, there's a starting point in terms of value. They go IPO in 1968, and that raises $40 million. Then we have a business value of $320 million in 1990. And then by 2020, it's valued at $6.5 billion. Not too bad. One of my favorite stories in the book, and I'm sure anyone in the exit planning industry would love, love, love the story. It is great, Bruce. So there's a $7.5 million offer for the business. And the dad wants to sell it. And by the way, so does the family because every family member is going to generate some wealth out of this transaction. And Bob is saying, I don't think this is a good idea. And the dad asks a great question. This is the classic question in the world of exit planning. If not now, when? So, You sell, according to Bob, you sell when you have neither the energy, and by the way, I'm quoting this right from the book, you sell when you have neither the energy nor the ideas to achieve your financial objectives. That is the time to sell 
that is the time to sell and allow another management team that does have the vision and energy to pick up the baton, end quote. To me, Bruce, this is one of the most astute and insightful lines in the book. As I'm sure you have been exposed to people who've been faced with somebody who's comes knocking. And, you know, they got a bag of money and, you know, it seems like, you know, the, the people that I've known, the people that I respect have said, I'm not done yet. And that, so I, I think that's, I mean, that's certainly the, that's certainly the mindset of the successful founder, the successful entrepreneur, this, you know, anybody in that position. I can't think, I can't think of a better way to look at it. Um, I mean, there's sometimes if you're, you know, I guess if you're if you're not going to be continuing to achieve achieve the financial results, then you know there's there's you're going to be forced into making a deal, or if you just don't want to deal with it anymore, and now let's just get the most we can because I'm done. This is probably too because you never because you you're never going to know what the right number is. Nobody knows what the right number is. So you can't use that. That number shouldn't be what for a lot of people is going to be the most important decision of their life. It's got to be something bigger than that. And what you just read is bigger than just a number. Oh, and there's another thing, Bruce. And I do get to work with a lot of business owners who are looking to sell or looking to grow, especially my line that I say over and over again, hey, when the dream is bigger than the pocketbook, that's either when it's time to sell or find a very, very rich partner. That's good. So Bruce, there are many other big ideas in the book, but here are just a few to highlight. Uh, Number one, if the leadership shows itself incompetent or a poor character, it cannot be fixed from the middle or the bottom. That may seem self-evident. Number two, in my experience, successful leadership is part art and part science the portion that is art, qualities like empathy, creativity, aspiration, and introspection may be instinctual traits that someone may be gifted at during birth, at birth. And then the third point I really like, a word to would-be entrepreneurs who aspire to a leadership role in their company, apprenticeship plays a major role in the likelihood of success. That last one, I could not agree more on that last one on apprenticeship. What were some of your impressions as he wrote about leadership? Yeah. I mean, I like the, uh, especially the second, uh, the second item that you, that you read where it says the portion that's art. And again, you you kind of alluded to technical people and, and financial and, and all of that. And I, and, and I think that I think it also spreads over to like IT and some of those things is the, um, you know, the art of leadership, I think sometimes gets, um, gets misconstrued by you put the, you put the most talented, um, smartest, uh, most experienced uh, person into a leadership role. And that's not always the right leader. Uh, You know, you kind of look at sports and you see, you know, it's rare that you're, you're, league MVP ends up being a head coach down the road, you know, so there must be something else. There must be something else to it. Um, 
and so I, I think, and, and, you know, you, you speak of the, um, you know, kind of the manager who's coming up through the ranks, you know, it, if, if somebody's, if some, if, if somebody's uh, smart enough or is, you know, able to play the game enough, you can just outrun the consequences of all the decisions that you make. You just keep getting, you know, promoted before the, you know, the fruits of your labor um, start to start to really start to really show. And sometimes those fruits are good. Sometimes they're bad. Um, the word I like most um, is, is empathy um, in, in the, the art section of leadership, because that's the toughest one. Um, there is, you know, to be able to have an empathetic mindset while still be focusing on what needs to be done, um, at work, but being able to step into multiple other people's shoes. And sometimes that's caretaking and other times it's strategic. It's like, you know, let's see, oh, you know, empathy can also tell you what somebody's going to do, you know, from a competitive standpoint and some other things too. So I think that, I think the empathy stretches beyond, um, you know, kind of the, the, the psychoanalytical piece and can be also help you understand your customer, help you understand uh, co-workers and all the stakeholders. Bruce, after they went public, another recommendation, I don't know if this is from a board member or not, but he said you need to be spending more time in the field. And he took that advice to heart. He ended up visiting 113 stores in one year. And by that time, they were pretty well spread out. And he, he went on to say that when problems occur, we never blame the followership. And two more points regarding the board of directors. And by the way, if you work in a private company or run a private company, you may not think this applies to you, but just as an FYI, for boards, this is a great section in the book. Don't just have a meeting where you go over the numbers. What Bob did, and I don't know where he got this idea, but each quarter they had a theme. So, for example, in one quarter in the year, they talked about the brand. In another quarter, they would talk about the organization's depth in terms of people, uh, the skill, the talent they had. And then maybe in another in another quarter, they talk about the five-year plan. So moving on, moving on, when you hear the words exploitation and experimentation, what do you think of, Bruce? So I think of uh, exploitation is an opportunity presents itself and you're ready to strike. And then experimentation, you're kind of, I feel like you're creating the creating the environment for the opportunity um, to be there. So what, so exploitation is, is going after something that, that self presents experimentation is when you um, kind of make your own success. By the way, Bruce, Robert, Bob read widely, very, he was a student of business that E and E exploitation and experimentation. If you're curious, that's based on an HBR article and achieving a balance. He says it is definitely an art. Now, just his opinion, exploitation is hard in small business because why we have limited resources. 
exploiting means taking risks. And again, feel free to differ with me, but I think in a bigger organization, you can take more risk. I, I just think exploitation is a little bit, it's not easy, but easier to take risk in bigger organizations. Thoughts? And you just, you, you made an interesting point um, here that they kind of surrounded my, my, this whole book. Cause you know, on one hand, it's sort of, and especially in the audible version, it's sort of this folksy style where it's like, yeah, me and dad opened a shop and we made some donuts and, you know, we're just some, you know, just some, some Joe's just trying to make a living. And it's like, hold on a second. You got a Harvard MBA, <laughs> you know, so you're not just, you know, the next in line in the family, who's just going to come in and start making donuts. And then when, it seemed like whenever, whenever Robert needed to find a somebody else, it wasn't, you know, they, he they were picking up somebody that had been, I'll, I'll say, you know, HR for like a Fortune ten company, you know, in in the government or in the judicial branch, or I mean, these there was like every time they, you know, every time you turn around, it was. I think, and like you and I discussed, it was almost like the best and the brightest, you know, there. And it, it, it's the, there was, the, they had a, a high level of talent and this was a big business. This, you know, this wasn't just like a, a you know, a little, a little scrappy upstart that was, so, so I think your, your point of, you know, exploitation, you know, kind of easier said than done when you've got. You got big brains in people management. You got big brains in legal management. You got big brains in marketing. They're, I mean, they they were some big names that they brought in for marketing as well. It wasn't just them, you know, it wasn't the, the the bookkeeper and Robert just kind of like riffing back and forth until they came up with, you know, with some of these ideas. But anyway. And again, I'm going to run through some of these, Bruce, other, other concepts in the book. Again, this reads more like a, it's, it's a management book written from a CEO's perspective. So he talked uh, at length about VMO, vision, mission, objectives. Uh, he talked about Duncan U, one of the first organizations to create an internal university. Now he admits they copied that from McDonald's. By the way, I think once you get to a certain size, I, I think I would say almost in any industry, once you hit around $100 million, having some type of an internal university, it just makes so much sense. Uh, I thought the compensation section in the book was excellent. Uh, listen to this. He wanted every 20-year employee, and he doesn't say where they were on the totem pole. It could be at the very top. It could be at a very lower level in terms of salary. He wanted every 20-year employee to retire at 66% rate of their annual salary and succession. He hit it hard as well. He took Drucker's advice. Don't just pick a CEO. And by the way, this applies to any role, but define the role very clearly. So don't focus on the title, focus on the work behind the title. In, in the first 10 to 12 years of my career, I don't remember succession being mentioned that much. I now hear it more, I'd say the past decade or so. But do you think Bruce succession planning 
is still underrated, especially in smaller organizations. And I know you may not have enough data to make a comment. I don't have the facts, Mark, but you know, I do. (laughs) I think it, I, you know, I think it's underrated, but you know, I don't, and under discussed, I don't know if that's ever going to change as long as people are involved. Bingo. Uh, Again, right on. You know, as long as people are involved, that's never going to change. It's always going to, there's always going to be, you know, a scramble, at least for part. I I enjoy it when CEOs talk about their reading list. The the book that resonated the most with him was The Best and the Brightest. Other books he mentions, Profit from the Core, Leadership is an Art, Boards that Lead Good to Great, and Managing for the Future. There are some others. The last thing I want to jump on, the last thing I want to do is jump on a soapbox and say to CEOs, The last thing I want to do, Bruce, is jump on a soapbox and say, CEO, you need to read. That's not right. But I'm saying this, reading can certainly reshape and bend the mind, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I think of several of them that, several of the things that's on his reading list that we mentioned that is, uh, I think are also favorites. Uh, Best and Brightest, obviously, is one of, another one of the, the favorites and kind of the, the, you know, the, 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 the message against hubris, which I think that I, which I think was mentioned even in, in Robert's book, cause he talked about hubris and how that was kind of the, during that difficult phase, hubris was one of their, one of the problems. Okay, Bruce, finally, what is your rating on this book? Well, I mean, I'm going to, I'm rated a five out of five, um, definitely exceeded my expectations when, when you suggested it. And really what, what I, this, this book is a masterclass in business and leadership um, there. And you think about it, think of how much, think of how rich the content is. There's like a, there's, there's five books in the things they go through, you know, the, the four pillars there, that could be a book mission, vi- mission, vision of, and objectives. That could be a book in and of itself. The, the the continual you know the the retail uh, metrics and the the data um, there that, that could be a textbook there and but then even the meetings and describing the board and the different meetings that they would have and how every meeting would have a purpose you know that's basically Lencioni's death by meeting there I mean and 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 then and then you know give give credit take blame that's a book there and that's all in, and that's all in one book this this thing is a enjoyable read that is also a masterclass in leading business at a high level bruce not only do i like the book's structure he names the eras in each chapter a fall from grace the resurrection happy days are here again merrily we roll along until we don't tea and crumpets anyone I also give it a five. And if you like reading books by leaders in retail or QSRs, quick serve restaurants, where there have been huge national or international growth, uh, you can learn a lot from CEOs like this one, Bob Rosenberg. And if you like business history, again, from a CEO perspective, this one might be one you want to add to your reading list. Finally, We ask every guest at the end, Bruce, 
what they are reading, or their favorite books. Now, you're not a guest, but I'm still going to ask you about your favorite read so far in 2023. You know, actually, in 2023, this has been kind of the year of the podcast. Um, For me, it's been a lot more. I've been listening to more Long, Huberman, Rogan, and some of some of the others, um, you know, have been listening to a little bit more of the long form podcast. Uh, just, I, I think they're really the only one that I've uh, noteworthy that I've been listening to is Four Hour Work Week. Not convinced that I can make work, but there's there's definitely some even for somebody who's not going to to take the full leap. There's I, I found some interesting stuff in that there, but yeah, other than that, it's been more. Um, and then, you know, and then actually on your recommendation, I've been doing a lot more fiction um, there. So kind of doing the, first of all, it's things, things that you recommend. So the, the, uh, um, the Dunkin' Donuts book was, was one I've listened to several times over. I've actually, I've, li- I've re-listened to Phoenix Project again, which, um, and, and was it Unicorn, um, I think is the other one, uh, the second one. So. Um, I'm excited to and and actually excited to maybe give Gene Kim's book, new book uh, a look as well. Bruce Brother, thank you for doing this. We will be doing another book review in a few weeks, but I am not ready to give it away just yet. But again, thank you very much. Uh, it's always a pleasure, and uh, I I enjoy uh, your your recommendations are always spot on. You definitely know what um, what resonates with me. Um, there and it's it's kind of it it's fun to dig into a book um knowing that you're going to talk about it and kind of and then also being able to discuss it with somebody i enjoy talking uh to about books so um this the pleasure is all mine you are listening to cfo bookshelf lifelong learning for financial leaders and now back to our host Mark Gandy. Bruce and I mentioned Bob's father several times. His book is Time to Make the Donuts. Again, his name is William. He was also the founder of International Franchise Association in 1959. One of my favorite stories as we wrap up in William's book is when he describes one of his travels to a franchisee in Massachusetts. The owner-operator, he wasn't there. William steps in and he tastes one of the donuts and he's livid because they were terrible. So he gets on the phone. He's irate. William is owner comes to the store and William, he throws the donuts away. And you can imagine how irate that made the franchisee feel. He even called the police, but that led to nothing. So that meant They had nothing to sell. And this woman comes into the store and you can read her facial expressions. There's nothing there. I guess she's going to come back later. Well, William stops her and he tells her he's the president of the company. He gives her a card, writes his name on it and says, come back later in about one hour and we'll give you a dozen donuts free. Imagine the goodwill that created or how, how many friends she told and the impact that even had on the franchisee. I'm betting in Donut You, that story got told over and over and over again. Anyway, the Dunkin' Donuts Gross story, very fascinating. We need to call this a wrap. 
Thank you, Bruce Reed. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.